We'll jump in. I'm gonna try to get two chapters done. We're rounding the end of Genesis. So we're in the story of Joseph. He takes up the majority of the last 14 chapters from chapter 37 through chapter 15. The majority of that is the Joseph story, which is a phenomenal story. So here's where we're at. Famine's hit. Joseph has been storing up food. The food's now being sold and divvied out. His 10 brothers come down. They make a first trip. One of them stays behind, Simeon. They go back. In a year's time, they've eaten up all the food that they had brought, bought from Joseph. They know they have to make a second trip. They don't know Joseph is who Joseph is. They just refer to him over and over as the man, the mean man. Uh, so chapters 43 and 44, we covered that last Wednesday, is the test. Where Joseph tests these 10 brothers to see if the last 22 years has changed them. Are these the same guys that threw me into a pit and sold me into slavery? If they are, then he has a plan to actually keep Benjamin with him and send the rest of the boys home. But what we saw in chapter 44 was Judah, who's now emerging, probably the worst of the brothers. Uh, he's portrayed as a pretty, pretty bad dude, chapters 37 and 38. It's his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Chapter 38, just one of the hardest chapters in Genesis, just gross. Judah now is emerging as a guy who's been transformed. And so Judah stands up and says, when Joseph, they don't know he's Joseph, when the mean man says, hey, you guys can all leave, uh, we're keeping Benjamin, Judah stands up, makes this incredible, graceful plea and says, no, send my little brother home, keep me instead. All right, so that brings us to chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Maybe they were neighbors, I don't know. That's a loud cry. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So what are the 10 brothers thinking right now when Joseph says, I'm Joseph? Like, this is really bad. He's going to kill us, right? That's what a normal person would do. He's been playing a cat and mouse game with us for now two years and he's gonna pounce and kill us, right? It's like the Count of Monte Cristo. Did you read that book? Right, it's about revenge. The entire, I'm going to get revenge. The people that hurt me, I don't care if it takes decades, I will get revenge. So that's what they're assuming. A normal person would do that. For 22 years, you guys have put me through hell, sold me into slavery, I was falsely accused of rape. I am a convicted rapist right now in a political office. How hard is that to do, right? He's probably reminded of that all the time. It's probably in the newspapers, right? So he's just got a hard job. So they're afraid because they think he's gonna kill them. 
Obviously not. Why do you think Joseph sends all of his servants out when he's gonna tell the story of what happened to him? I think Joseph knows he's gonna invite his brothers to come live with him. And he does not wanna air their dirty laundry in front of other people. And so he sends his servants out because maybe his servants don't have the same kind of attitude that he has of forgiveness and reconciliation. And they might be like, you did what to my master? My master has been so good to me for now all these years. Ooh, I don't like you guys. And so Joseph wisely just says, you guys need to leave while we take care of some family business. Very mature of Joseph. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. So Joseph doesn't wanna air this dirty laundry. Don't share bad things with people who shouldn't hear it. Super simple. If they have no part to play in this, don't share bad things with people that have no part to play in it. Joseph is wise right here. That might be a New Year's resolution for some of us. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there, you are, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. And you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This is the reconciliation so this family that's been busted apart by evil and favoritism and anger and envy is now put back together. I want you to notice three things in this because most of us, if you have family, you're gonna have some kind of difficulty with them at some point. Maybe over Christmas break, you already had difficulty with them. So how do you walk through that? How do you do better? Well, notice three things he does. Number one, he embraces them. The first thing he says to them in verse four is this, come near to me. I can just imagine them backing away when they heard who he is. Oh no, he's gonna kill us. 
So he says, come here. And I just, in, in my mind's eye, I always just picture him just grabbing them and bringing them in. And then it ends with him hugging and weeping his brothers, all of them. He touches them. Do you know how important touch is to humans? It's huge. It's how I won my wife, Charity. You can ask her. She tells this story. She goes, I'll never forget this. I was in the foyer of Applegate Christian Fellowship. We were not an item at all. I'm standing there waiting to go in, talking to a buddy. It's 1996. And she, was, she saw me, and so she came over. Um, I've known her since she was four years old. So she comes over to say hello. And she said, I reached over and I grabbed your arm. And she says, I've never forgotten that moment. And I tell her, yeah, I know, because it was the first time you felt the guns. <laughs> a lot of people have that happen to them when they feel the guns. It's pretty normal. <laughs> it's that moment. Touch is huge. It actually releases oxytocin. If you don't know what that is, that it's been called the, the uh, nursing drug because when a mom has a baby and goes through all that pain, when she begins to nurse that baby, that's what's released in her brain and it helps her forget the pain. Oxytocin is the only reason why a woman will ever have a second child <laughs> because if they remembered everything, there's no way they would. My wife says, I remember everything. Right? It, 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 brought, it builds trust. It connects you. It bonds you. That's released into your brain when you touch. The skin is the largest organism. If you can embrace somebody, if you can kiss them, if you can hug them, that breaks so many things in people. So many of the 22 years that have built up between people. Just an embrace, a hug, a kiss, a touch. And I love that it says he hugs all of his brothers. He wasn't like Judah, dude, you sold me into slavery, not you. Can you do that with your family? Or is there one person where you're like, mm, not him? Can we do that here at Edgewater with this family? I hope and pray we can. Psalm 133 says how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. I would add sisters to that as well. So that's number one. He grabs them, touches them. Come on. And number two, he has this thing that he talks. I call it a theology of evil. So he's had 22 years to wrestle around with what has happened to him. And he comes up with this theology. And if you look at verse five, here's what he says. You sold me here. You were free will agents of what you did. You sold me here. But then right after that, God sent me before you. On the other side, God sent me before you. And then if you skip down to verse eight, he says this. So it was not you who sent me here. You did sell me. It was not you who sent me here, but God, All right? So when you look at this, you see the same action being credited to two different agents, the brothers and God. You can find this over and over and over and over. I could give you probably 50 instances 
in the Old Testament of the same event, Nebuchadnezzar, no, God, Assyrians, no, God, over and over, same event, it's like there's two agents. There's a free will, being, and there's God as well. So what's it trying to say here? Does this mean that God made Jacob play favorites with his sons and give Joseph the coat of many colors that led to the envy and the anger and the murder? And God put that in the hearts of these 10 brothers so that they threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery? Did God cause that? There are certain theological systems that say yes. That's exactly what happened. That God controlled these things. In fact, they'll say this, that God requires evil to demonstrate his character. So without evil, how could we know about God's mercy or God's grace or God's forgiveness? So those systems will say, yes, God is the cause of those things. That's not my system. I say James 1.13 says this about God, that there's no shadow of turning in him, that he is not tempted with evil, nor does he tempt with evil. So I say, no. Instead, I say this, evil is of no use to God. It does not supply some kind of imagined deficiency that God has, that God somehow needs these things to accomplish his will. It contributes nothing to God, period. And if you look at the life of Jesus, when Jesus saw evil, he never was like, hey, I could use evil. Oh, I'm glad evil happened. Jesus always looked at evil as an enemy to be conquered and to be destroyed. That's the way evil should be viewed. Jesus doesn't need anything to save us. He saves alone, okay? So based on all that, I have a statement. Josh, did you get a video from, a slide from me? Perfect. I'll read it for you. This is from David Bentley Hart. He's one of my favorite theologians on evil. And he says this, and I'll read it pretty slow because it's helped me when I try to look at things like this, like what is happening? Did God, how did God get Joseph to Egypt? Did he need the brothers to do all this stuff in order to get Joseph to Egypt? I say, no. God is very capable of getting Joseph where he wanted to get Joseph without the brothers doing what the brothers did. Now that does not mean God cannot then use the actions, poor actions of people to do what he wants. So here's the statement. It's by David Bentley Hart, quote, God has willed his good in creatures from eternity and will bring it to pass. So God's will is I want good for my creatures and I will bring that to pass. Despite their rebellion, by so ordering all things toward his goodness, that even evil, which he does not cause, becomes an occasion of the operation of grace, end quote. Does that make sense to you? God's will is always good, period. People don't always have the same will. Sometimes they rebel against God's good will. But God, because he's great enough, can even take my rebellion or 10 brothers' rebellion and use their rebellion, which he did not cause, to bring about his same good will, which is to save 
Egypt and the 70 people belonging to the tribe of Israel. That's what he's saying. And that to me is good theology. And because Joseph understood that, and if you can understand that, then when evil happens to you, you can be able like Joseph to trust God into it, in it and forgive even the perpetrators of it. If you understand this simple concept, what it does is it frees you from having to get back at people. It frees you from that and you can forgive them and move on just like Joseph does right here. It's brilliant. It reminds me a little bit of Rebecca Bender. If you've heard her story, she shares an office with us. Just brilliant, she's brilliant. And she will go in and share with our high schoolers sometimes. She actually shared a couple of weeks ago. And one time that she shared this, high schooler asked her this question. If you don't know her story, she was human trafficked uh, in Las Vegas. Um, Just, it's a very, very hard tale. For seven years, she was actually, there was a sting operation by the FBI where she was set free from it. Just amazing. Her baby was used as a tool to keep her and control her. Just brutal, just absolutely brutal. So very bad situation. Uh, Jesus has set her free, is using her now brilliantly to to train others. So she shares this story with our high schoolers. And one of the high schoolers asked her in the Q&A time, what do you want to happen to the man who human trafficked you? A really Joseph question. What do you want to happen to the 10 brothers who sold you into slavery? Her answer, I would love to see him saved by Jesus Christ. I think that's brilliant. That's a right understanding of evil, a good theology of evil, okay? I get that. You made those choices, no doubt, and you are gonna stand under those choices totally, but I also know God can take the same event and turn it for his good, and he has done that in my life, and so I can now release you from all that and forgive you of it and move on from it. I call all this in my own mind, judo theology, right? Judo is a martial art where you use the momentum of your opponent against him. So if, if Josh Cunningham got mad at me for some reason, and so he came storming up on this stage at me, judo would be, be an art where you could take his momentum and just throw him down and use it against him. And he would crush himself and break into a thousand pieces. <laughs> right? So that's judo theology. God is great enough to take the evil of these 10 brothers and actually turn it against them and use it for his good, even though he didn't cause it, all right? And that's what Joseph is saying right here. It's brilliant, right? So that's number two. If you wanna reconcile, number one, embrace, touch. There's something powerful in that. That's how you break the ice. Number two, have a really good understanding of, of evil. Really good understanding of evil. And then number three, he knows how to win. So this is what he finally says. Take all your stuff and move it down here. In verse 11, he says, I will provide for you for the next five years. The same people that sold him and hated him and wanted to kill him, he now says this, for the next five years, I'm paying all your bills. You gotta go shopping at Costco for free for the next five years. How cool would that be? My wife and I used to have a saying a long time ago, nothing goes faster than a hundred bucks at Costco. Now that there's nine of us in our home, it's nothing goes faster than 500 bucks at Costco. Could you imagine that? Five years, we're gonna pay everything for you. 
It's what Romans 12, 21 says. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Joseph gets this. You guys are absolutely evil to me. And I have every right to hold it over your head. I have every right to put you in prison. But I'm gonna do the exact opposite. For the next five years, I'm gonna feed you and care for you and give you a place to stay. Brilliant. He reconciles here. It's amazing. So, verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and to all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So now Pharaoh shows up. He's heard the crying. He's heard the craziness. He's like, what is happening over there? What's happening at my neighbor's house? He shows up and I love verse 20. He says, have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So Egyptians were very clean shaven, very modern, very cosmopolitan. And you'd have these nomadic tribemen coming in with big beards to be like Duck Dynasty goes to New York City. So he's like, listen, leave your stuff at, back at home. Don't bring your Ikea furniture down here. I got better stuff down here. I'll, we'll, we'll get Martha Stewart over there. She'll get you all set up, guys. Don't worry about any of your stuff. And I'm sending my Lamborghinis to go pick you up because there was no wagons. Wagons were a very Egyptian thing, wagons and chariots. So he's like, I'm gonna send my Lamborghinis. We're gonna pick you up. Just give your stuff away on Craigslist. Come down here. I got you taken care of. And then Joseph looks at his brothers and it says he gave them, verse 22, changes of clothes. Now, why does he do that? If you remember in the story, in chapter 44, when they are leaving and they don't know Joseph is Joseph yet and Joseph's servant comes out and says, hey, one of you guys stole my master's silver cup. Remember that? And he starts going through all the bags and they don't find it, they don't find it, they don't find it and they come to Benjamin's bag and they find it in that bag. And they say, he's gonna be, Benjamin's gonna be our slave for his whole life. What did the brothers do to their clothes? They rip them up. They tear their clothes, showing how much anguish they have. So Joseph is looking at his brothers now in their tattered clothes and he doesn't say, man, that's your fault. 
You shouldn't have done that. There's your bed, sleep in it. He sees that and he says, let me get you some new clothes. I love Joseph. He's a generous, generous man. If there's one quality that I want in husbands for my daughters, it's to be generous men. I haven't seen anything ruin a marriage faster than a selfish, stingy man. It just ruins marriages. Joseph, hugely generous. We have a saying and it's this, boys are takers, men are givers. And it has nothing to do with age. It has a sense to do with your heart. God has blessed me so much. That's what Joseph's heart is. God has blessed me so much. How can I not bless you? But then to Benjamin, what does he do to Benjamin? 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Now, why is that? Here's my thought. I mean, I could be wrong. The 10 brothers had sinned and sent him into slavery. And Joseph is being absolutely generous to them, no doubt. Super kind, forgiving, grace, mercy, all that. Benjamin was the only one that was not involved in the sin of selling him into slavery. And he gets hugely blessed. I think there's a great, great blessing in life from simply staying away from sin. It's just that simple. You wanna be blessed in life? Stay away from sin. Stay away from <clears throat> the word in Hebrew, raw, evil. Stay away from raw because it just, it brings bad stuff to you. Benjamin's blessed five times as much, 100 times as much because he stayed away from raw. So a month ago, uh, someone sent me this article and it was on Bob Coy. Who here knows who Bob Coy is? Okay. So Bob Coy, massive pastor, Fort Lauderdale, uh, big giant church down there. I went to his church one time, Charity and I, when we had two kids, we were down there uh, kind of on vacation business. And I had massive church, it was unbelievable. You walk into this, it's like an intersection and there was the biggest aquarium I've ever seen in my life. It had a life-size, full-grown blue whale in it. Like it was that big. <laughs> I'm kidding, not really. It was big though. So it's just, just you're like, whoa, you're so, you're just, it's unbelievable. Uh, if you know a story though, a couple years ago, addicted to pornography, uh, multiple acts of adultery, really sick stuff. <clears throat> Ends up being removed from his position, goes to another church where this pastor says, I'm gonna help you, uh, walk you through this. He just skips out of that. So the article was about, where's Bob Coy at now? Well, he's divorced doesn't have his kids anymore. Uh, and he is managing a bar in Boca Raton. That's what he's doing now. And he's trying to, in the article, he's like, well, I'm trying to get some people to support me to start another church. Like, bro, number one, you should stop managing a bar in Boca Raton if that's really your goal. And number two, I think it's, that's past for you. It's really sad, it broke my heart. Because I used to like him. He had a big impact. But then he got involved in raw. Got involved in raw. And because he got involved in raw, the blessings that could be his, like Benjamin's, man, they're gone. They're gone. Stay away from raw. 
I think about my own life and I just think I'm so blessed with my wife, with my kids, with even this building project that's coming up. I'm thinking, man, this is gonna be so fun. With last year getting to take a group of high schoolers down to Carmen Serdon, that was like a highlight of my year last year. Just, it was so awesome just being with 25 high schoolers that, that are engaged in mission and love Jesus and wanna help and serve orphans. Man, it's just so awesome. Talking a little bit right now with my son Elijah and my daughter Gabrielle, what, what about going and visiting the folks dads in Africa? You, what, what do you think about that before they leave? Like those options all disappear if I got involved in raw. Stay away from raw, stay away from it. It will hurt you. Benjamin's blessed, double blessed, triple blessed, quadruple blessed because he stayed away from raw and he gets a whole bunch more. I got a great staff right now, best staff ever. Great elders right now. All that, all that could very easily be gone if I get involved in raw. Same with you guys. Stay away from raw. It hurts. It's bad. Be like Benjamin. Be like him. So then, Lamborghinis are ready. They take off. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father. I love verse 24 though. <laughs> One do not quarrel on the way. How good is that? That should be on the back of the driver and passenger seats in every minivan, right? Do not quarrel, Genesis 45, 24. Do not quarrel on the way, kids. <laughs> and he knows his brothers, right? They're gonna get out of here and on the way home, they're gonna be talking about, who's gonna tell dad? Who's gonna tell dad that for 22 years, we lied, that an animal did not devour his son. Your other son sold him into slavery. Who's gonna, I mean, that, I can imagine that conversation. So Joseph knows all this and is like, don't do it. Don't do it. So he sent his brothers away. As they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told them, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became numb for he did not believe them. This is the treadmill test, right? For a 130 year old man's heart without the treadmill. Like just, oh, okay. He's probably, wondering, am I getting punked right now? Who's got the camera? But then <clears throat> they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. He sees the Lamborghinis. He's like, okay, something's up here. You guys didn't buy these things. Let's go. And then he just, the, the final verse, I just say this. He's like, best day ever, best day ever. This is more than I could have ever imagined. More than my prayer. Remember that prayer he said in chapter 43, verse 14? And it wasn't a prayer of faith at all. It was a very, very weak prayer, but it's coming to pass. More than he could ever imagine, that simple prayer. So verse 40, chapter 46, verse one. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, 
and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, and their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, and Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So Jacob hears this, knows Joseph is in Egypt, leaves where he lived in Hebron, came down south about 30 miles to a place called Beersheba. And in Beersheba, he makes sacrifice. And this is the first time that we have heard Jacob make a sacrifice in a long, long time, decades. So Jacob to me is like the Christmas Easter Christian. It's like very sporadic for him. But he wants to ask because he knows this. My grandfather Abraham went to Egypt and it wasn't good at all. Then Isaac was gonna go to Egypt and God told him, don't go. So he goes there and he makes sacrifice to ask. And this is what God says. Number one, he says, I'm the God of your fathers. I love that. Isn't one of our passions to have our kids follow the same faith we do? Hey, I'm, this faith that's been transferred down, here it goes. And Jacob knew something. I'm gonna go to Beersheba. He knew that my grandfather met God at Beersheba and my dad met God at Beersheba. So I'm going to go to Beersheba and see if I can't meet God there too. There was a legacy in Jacob's family that he knew where to go when he needed help. Do your kids have that legacy? If they're at a point in their life where they're trying to figure out God's will for them, do they have a Beersheba where they know, well, I know this because this is what my dad and mom did when they had questions. They had a Beersheba. He knew where to go. I'm going back there because as for me and my house, we're gonna follow the Lord. This is what we're doing. This is how we do it. And it's now passed on to this once a year Christian, if you would. He knows, no, my dad and my grandpa, they did it this way. I'm going back there. I love that. Number two, God tells him not to be afraid. The number one most repeated command in the Bible is, don't be afraid. Why is it the number one most repeated command in the Bible? Because we're afraid. <laughs> That's why. Right? We, invented a hollow, uh, we invented a holiday called Halloween to make us more afraid, right? The, the, the most best-selling movies right now are horror movies. Like, we, we, we like to be afraid. So God's like, don't be afraid. And this is the reason why, Jacob, you don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. That's it. I'm with you. If you start a business with Bill Gates, 
Would you be afraid? Man, I wouldn't. There's money behind that. Second most wealthy man in the world. If you took a trip with Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, now the number one most wealthy man in the world, would you be afraid? Probably not. If you need to go somewhere with Donald Trump, would you be afraid? Well, maybe. That's maybe a bad example. Scratch that one. <laughs> right? That's what it's, what are you afraid of? I'm with you. And then number three, God says this. You're gonna return. It's an incubator in Egypt. Egypt is gonna be the incubator that makes you, verse three, into a great nation. You're going down as 70. You're coming out as 2 million. It's the incubator. Now, God does not tell what's gonna happen down there. He just says, you're gonna come out great. He doesn't say there's gonna be slavery and really hard things in the middle. He just says, the goal for you is that you're gonna come out great. I think God, a lot of times, doesn't tell us what happens in the middle. Because if he did, we wouldn't go. So God doesn't tell us the middle. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen at the end. You're gonna come out a great nation. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Like if God really told you what it meant to have children, who would actually have a child, right? No one would, we'd be going extinct. So you have to go, I want kids. And then why do I have kids? It's the middle. But did you come out a great nation and you trust him on the journey? So God, that's what I'm gonna do, all right? So verses eight, all the way down to verse 27 is a genealogy. Who's stoked to read genealogies? Right? Who's like, yes, I have them highlighted and underlined and memorized. So I'll let you, your homework is to read this. It is the Israeli founder's phone book, like literally. You can trace these guys. These are the founders of the nation of Israel. So read them, study them on your own time. Verse 28. It's really hard to pronounce the names, but most people don't know how to pronounce them. So if you just read them quickly and act like you know what they are, no one even says anything. I'm giving you my secrets. Verse 28, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen and there Joseph prepared his chariot. Joseph is so excited. He goes out, gets his own chariot ready. It'd be like Trump getting Air Force One ready, right? Like he is stoked and he went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Egyptians were grain farmers. So that, that was like, yuck, smelly. So here's what happens. There's this reunion. 
Has anyone seen the movie Lion? You have got to see the movie Lion. It's a true story about this kid named Saru Brearley, who's when, he, when he's four years old, he wants to go with his dad, his brother somewhere, his older brother. And so he follows his older brother, and this is in India, follows his older brother to this place. The brother and he get separated. He climbs aboard this train to go to sleep. The train takes off. Goes a thousand miles away to Calcutta. Different language, different state in India. He gets off, he's lost. Gets set into an uh, orphanage, really bad at orphanage. Then he gets adopted by Australian parents and moves to Australia. Grows up, then wants to find out his roots. So he gets on Google Maps with some buddies and starts looking at India on Google Maps. And long story short, spoiler alert, plug your ears if you wanna watch the movie. He finds a landmark that he remembers as a kid, as a four-year-old. I remember that little landmark. Goes back there and has a reunion with his mother like 30 years later. I mean, you, you can't help but just cry. It's one of the most brilliant stories I've ever seen called Lion. Watch it, it's amazing. I mean, that's like this right here. Just brilliant, it's unbelievable. How in the world? Joseph gets out with his chariot, got probably little flags on it, fluttering in the wind. Uh, you know, he's a diplomat. He's got the secret service running beside him and jumps out. And Jacob just says this, I'm good. I can die now. I'm good. God has been so good to me. Not easy. I'm good. I'm good now. I love that. I think believers should live a life like Jacob where you, it may not be the easiest life in the world, but you come to your end and you're like, I'm good. I've done what I'm supposed to have done. I finished my course with joy. I'm ready, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter four, I'm ready to be offered up. I've done it. That's what he says in verse, uh, end of, where does he say that? Verse 30, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Joseph now, this will be very important in the next chapter. He coaches his brothers. This is what you need to say to Pharaoh. Because if you don't, what's gonna happen is Pharaoh's gonna invite you to come live here in the city. And if you come live here in the city, what will happen is this. You will be assimilated into the culture of Egypt and we will disappear as a nation. So you need to say we're shepherds because they don't really like shepherds. And they'll say, okay, stay out there in Goshen where you can grow up, it'll, it'll be the incubator for you. You can grow up and become the powerful nation that God wants you to become. So Joseph, very wise here. We want you to stay here. Beautiful, lush Goshen, where you're in Egypt, but you don't become part of Egypt. It's the same thing for us today. Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And as believers, there are certain places we should say, no, that's not for a believer. I'm not going there. I don't wanna be assimilated into that culture, right? So that'll become very important, chapter 47. So let me end by saying this. We, we, we just had the happy ending of Genesis, right? Genesis is up and down, man. There are the brilliant, brilliant moments, Genesis one and two, and then the bomb of Genesis three. And then the birth of kids, ah, good, but then one kills the other, back down. Like it's, Hills and valleys, good, bad, tove and raw, just it's all in here. And here's my hope. When I, when I started Genesis, here's my hope for you to get throughout Genesis. And I'll try to say it like this. I'll use a story 
about my wife. Not a true story, I'm making this up. So my wife, if you know her, I've known her a long time since she was four years old. I won't tell you how many years that is because that's giving away trade secrets. So uh, we've been married in January. We will have been married 18 years. I got married in the year 2000 because it makes it really easy when people ask, how long have you been married? What year is it? 2000. I got married early, January. So it's even easier. There's only 15 days where I'm wrong. So, so married a long time and know her pretty well, as, as well as anyone. And my wife, you could ask probably just about anyone, what's a word you would describe my wife as? Kind. She's, very, she's a very kind person. That's what she is. Always been super kind. So I know that. That's her character. She is kind, kind, kind. So let's imagine this scenario. She goes, she volunteers. And her job volunteering is to give people glasses. Well, she's got this table, this bar set up, and she's pouring water for people. And so she's doing that as kindly as possible. She's brilliantly, wonderfully volunteering, helping people, pouring water. And I'm outside and I, and I see through the glass, I kind of glance in there, I'm just looking at her. Man, she's so beautiful. Look at my wife, that's awesome. And this older lady comes walking up, it appears to get a glass of water, very nice looking elderly lady. And uh, she gets up to there and, I, and I'm just kind of watching. I can't really see exactly what's going on. And there's a little conversation when all of a sudden my wife pulls out a 45 Magnum and points it right at the lady's head. And that's all I see. And there's like a rush that happens and, and I'm so distraught, like what in the world just happened that I can't even take it and I just go home and I'm like just sitting at home going, oh, just rocking like, oh my goodness, what happened? What is my wife? So I have a couple options right there. Like, all right, either I've been wrong about the character of my wife for the last, well, since she was four years old, long time, married 18 years, I've been wrong. Uh, or she snapped, something, she just snapped. Or... I need more information. I need more information that maybe explains what I saw in a different light. So I wait, just in the darkness, just freaking out. How, 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 how? My wife comes home, I'm like, sweetie, I, I saw something that you did that I just cannot understand it, all right? You, you were getting people water when this very attractive, nice elderly woman came, came up to the the bar to get a glass of water and you pull the 45 and point it at her head. I'm like, you, I don't understand this. This is so out of character of you. What happened? She goes, oh, well, let me tell you, All right? So Genesis is like that. Genesis is giving us an 18-year character, if you would, of God. And that 18-year character of God, what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to now inform the rest of the book rest of the Old Testament, in fact, inform everything about God, that we know God's character. And even if we see events that we're like, what in the world was that? That we still come back to, wait, Genesis 1 and 2, God is good and generous, and God is always after pursuing our best, and God does not get involved in raw, doesn't, he's not part of raw, he's the one that uses raw, though, for his good. All right, so my wife comes home, and, what was the deal? Oh, well, this old lady, she was having a fit of hiccups and they were super, super bad. And they're over and over and over again. And so she's asking for a glass of water, but I knew the glass of water wasn't gonna help her. So I realized the only way to help her get rid of the hiccups, scare the snot out of her. So I pulled the 45 on her and she was cured. I'm like, oh, 
awesome. Not only are you so attractive and kind, you are brilliantly smart. And her character just gets better. That's what Genesis is supposed to do, that we now have this core character of who God is. He's kind and he's generous. And now whatever else we might begin to see of God or experience of God, we come back to, maybe I just need more information because I know the God that I serve is kind and good and generous. And I just might need some more information. So God is going to, in these last chapters, he's gonna weave together all the raw of this family, all the dysfunction of this family, all the favoritism of of Jacob, all the bad stuff, all the four wives, just this crazy, crazy thing. He's gonna weave it together into this powerful chosen nation, something only God can do, taking what the enemy would wanna use for evil and turning it for good. And that is supposed to launch you in to the story of Israel as you go throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? God is good and God is generous and we can trust him. That's what Genesis tells us. So Jesus, this day, I pray against the lie of the enemy of Genesis three, that you are not good that you're holding out on us. And if we only had that one piece of fruit, we'd be happy. Forgive us for doubting your character, your kindness, your goodness, and your generosity. May we be a people that are shaped by the story in Genesis in such a way that we interpret whatever happens to us through this lens of your goodness and your generosity towards us. And may we take that even this night with us. And may we trust, Lord, even when we don't understand certain things, that with more information, you will weave this together It is something that's beautiful, a tapestry that might look tangled and knotty from one side, but when it's flipped over, it's a beautiful portrait of your love for us. May we see that, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.